Well, hi, everybody, and welcome. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm Toby Miller. I'm in some strange hotel in Oslo in Norway where <laughs> no amount of magnetization permits the plastic keys to work in the elevator or the hotel room door. And actually, uh, my new friend whom I just met and whom I'm adoring spending time with, I first encountered online, but then without knowing it was the same person in the elevator when I was tearing my hair out, (laughs) saying, how do I get into my room? Um, And... uh, And I talked to you in Spanish. You spoke to me in Spanish. I can't even remember why. So... Please correct my pronunciation. Your name will be Abir Sadi. Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abir Sadi. Yes, that's yeah. my name. Yeah. I'm uh, from yeah. Egypt, mainly, yeah. and uh, I'm a journalist, and now I'm trying to be an academic. That's what I'm trying to do. Ah, you won't take you long. You probably already are. And Abir, your trajectory. Uh, takes you in from many, many, many places. I know we've got limited time tonight. I wondered if you could tell us what you're working on now, and then maybe we could go back, back, back a little bit into the past. Uh, actually, I've just finished my dissertation and master's. Uh, it's in diversity and media, actually. I have a topic that uh, people talk about it now. It's about Islamic State, the discourse of the Islamic State, and uh, how this discourse, how it's formed, and how they express it, actually, on social Social media. My case study is about uh, the um, hostage campaign 2014 2015 on yeah. uh, YouTube. The videos, right. yes. And I think you've already told me during the time we've known one another that these videos are very professionally produced by people who really know what they're doing in many cases. It's a whole new style of videos, actually. Uh-huh. Those people are professionals, or they get to seek the help of professionals. And the issue uh, that they apply propaganda because it's very important. They understand the news values now goes in the media. So the news value tells you to get something unique. And the more brutal they have, this is the violence that they have, the more brutal, and the ways of killing and everything, the more attractive it is. And it's like people go and watch science fiction, watch strange stuff. So they feed the media machines very well because they understand that. Which makes us think, really, what are who are the people on the other side of this mysterious uh, organization? Because it's an organization, or um, social movement, whatever people would say. But at the end of the day, they understand very well the modern uh, visuals and everything, yeah. and how and the, and the news industry. Now you use the word mysterious, and I think that's a very appropriate term because it seems as though. For a lot of people in the global north or the west or wealthy countries, whatever we call them, Japan, Europe, the United States, ISIS is a mystery. It's inexplicable. People can't understand it at all. It's a closed organization. We know how it was formed, actually. It formed in Iraq and it formed of three components and one component of it was not religious at all actually it was a Ba'ath party the Iraqi party and they were very depressed after the invasion American invasion to Iraq in 2003 when the Americans came to Iraq they did something like if you have this computer in front of you and you're ready now and hold and you have got a problem what do you do you go to Microsoft you try to fix it but you don't the easy way is to erase everything by formatting it so they formatted the computer of Iraq and they erased everything. But they also had the kind of denazification model that they employed in Germany after the Second World War. 
they thought if you got rid of the Ba'athists, then you would be able to construct a new state. It wasn't just, I think, uh, how to hit the erase button. It was also, we have this model where everybody loved us for bringing democracy and popular capitalism to a country. But actually, you cannot bring uh, the democracy. It's not just elections, because when they dealt with the people, they dealt it's about the issue of representation. Because actually, they told people, they classified people because it's easier for them, because they're not from there. They're not like the British who already have a history there. So they told people indirectly, if you are not a Sunni or a Shia or a Kurdish, you cannot be represented. So get someone from your group and come. So even people who are atheists, even people who are who don't um, are, who are not into religion that much, they put themselves. The representation came through the religion and through the ideology. So and and the race. So. Uh, people came through those three and then the people who were not and then the elections happened and the Sunnis because they are minority and they chose to boycott because of what happened to Saddam they were not there in the government and everything was led after this in a way that really ruined the country. So part of what you're saying as I understand it would be then that the Ba'athists whatever their com complex ideological formulations may have been some people see them as left some as right but they were relatively non-sectarian not particularly religious. They've actually become a hyper-religious group in some sense, yes? Yeah, because of the ideology. Like, they were never uh, religious at all. Like, Saddam was against the idea of religious. Like, he's sometimes doing some practices, but like, he was using the ideology, the nationalist, not the, not the ideology of religion. So that was not their game. But their game was doing a state. And what Americans have done through that, and I'm sorry, uh, they put three things. They put those past people party, and they put the uh, they as well the people, religious people, especially that it was. It seems like a new Afghanistan. So people came, religious anger was there, and they put one with the very young and depressed young people. You put the three elements together. You put them in prison. You know, prison is the best social place ever. It's if a training ground. It's an uh, excellent one, actually, because. Now, me and you, we disagree on everything, but we have to eat together, talk together, because we are in prison together. So it made us very popular with each other. And this is when the idea came. Why Al-Qaeda is different than ISIS? Because at one point, Al-Qaeda, okay, Al-Qaeda now is like an old company. They even, like, they can do the Christmas uh, emails <laughs> and stuff like that. So this is Al-Qaeda now. But on the other side, ISIS is a very young organization based on the three sectors. One of them is very young, which is the young people who have been born in the 90s. And those are one of the components there. But the touch of the, uh, what, what, what the person in the Basque party knows, they can do a state. That's what they are doing. And this is why it's an Islamic state. And did you ever think about, it's very contradicting state, because at 2014, January, June, they declared the Khalifa, which is an yeah. Islamic party. Uh, um, uh, a state, but, but it's not a state. But the well, it's beyond that. It's meant to be a world, isn't it? Yeah, it goes beyond the world yeah. because it starts there and it goes everywhere from Muslim. Yeah. But the idea of the state, it's a very secular idea. It's a very secular idea to have a state, and it's a modern idea. And it is very strange, even from the time of Nasser, for example, when he has 
the military coup then it turned to be a revolutionary one. This is Gamal Abdel Nasser. I have to admit, uh, this, is, this really dates me and I'm embarrassed, but he's kind of one of my heroes. I love those sort of um, modernizing, relatively secular guys. So, you know, you find them with Nehru in India, with Nasser in Egypt, and of course, repressive and awful, and I acknowledge all of that, but... They were heroic figures for me standing against imperialism, whatever else Yeah, and, and he stands against imperialism, and this is what is good, and he shows that he did a great thing for the education system and, uh, and other stuff. But the issue is, it was very strange when he revolutionized the, the country and then the region, because he did that, and it was great. Uh, he still do a state. The idea of a yeah, state yeah. was born in the Europe, yes, like yes, sure. centuries ago. So it's a European idea. It's not, and it's an imperial idea on the other side. It was born by the businesses who wanted to deal with each other in Europe yeah. in the 18th, I think, 17th century. Not, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And and this is the idea. Well, people of a state. tend to date it from the Treaty of Westphalia in the mid 17th century. And this 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 idea is an ancient one. So now in the Middle East, it's very strange in our region, like because we are against the imperialism. Yes, we are. We are against. Yeah. But when we want to apply, we apply what the Western are applying. Yeah. With all, it comes with all the packages, all the rocks. Mm. So even ISIS, when they want to talk about themselves, they use ideology to recruitment. But on the other side, they pretend to be a state. And let me tell you something about Iraq and Syria and, and, and about this region. Yeah. That's the problem. No one controls a state. They only control cities. And with control is a presence in the cities and the ways between the cities, the roads. Mm -hmm. So the most critical problem, and I'm a safety trainer, as you know, yeah. is how to go from checkpoint, from a checkpoint to a checkpoint. Yeah. So if they control a, uh, this city, and this city, and this city, and the roads from this city, they can easily claim that they have a state. But I'm telling you, and I've covered this region, and I live in this region. Mm -hmm. No one in Syria controls a state. It's not a state anymore by means of control, because mm -hmm. even Al-Assad, he controls only Damascus and some places around Damascus right. and the roads between that. And, and this is a failed state, uh, I think, uh, scientifically and economically, it's classified. Iraq is nearly a, a failed state, but Syria is certainly, Libya is entering this phase, and, and it's really disappointing for the US people uh, working there. But it is mostly the Westerners who come to, to this region. And the recruitment now, the management, the three elements that I just mentioned for ISIS, are not the elements that controls now. We are, it, and this is why it is mysterious, because the Ba'ath people get old. And this is why Dirch Spiegel and the other, now they talk about the Ba'ath, like a few weeks ago or like two months ago. Why? Because there is a new component. This new component comes from the Westerns. And this is why the Hollywood style moves and everything. But when you do this course analysis for that, you find visuals less depending on writing, more depending on visuals. Because this this is one of the things that findings in my research. And what and that I guess for a lot of these people from the Western inverted commas who come they may not speak Arabic, for example, or read it. Yes, right? and this is, it's a multilingual uh, organization. Right. And they have targets, like I'm telling you about a lot of research that have been done in the second half of 2015, especially. In the second quarter and the third quarter, and now there is a lot, and everything is classifying. A number one country 
45%, according to, I think, the research of RT 2015, it's America, 45% people coming from there, 15% coming from UK, and we have Norway among those and other countries. And from the Arab region, which is not the priority, the priority comes from the West, and then the Arab, we have Saudi Arabia and we have Tunis, and then the other countries follow. How would you account for the interest from the United States, from Britain, uh, in participating? The people themselves. The people themselves who are getting involved with ISIS. We have a problem with the modern world about uh, representation. Especially now we have a multicultural society. There is nothing called between brackets pure people. There is no pure citizens everywhere. It's not uh, now the new world. Everywhere is a multicultural society. And there is a big problem with management, the managing this uh, diversity. And the media is not reflecting that. Like I don't want to tell you the media is carrying all the responsibility. But one of the things that they are not reflected, uh, there is lack of um, representation like uh, Taylor and people like talk about the lack of representation and the other thing, uh, there is lack of recognition as well. And this is why some races now uh, are calling for their own state or like dividing states and everything. For the Yos going there, they are torn between their turn between the multicultural in the society because there is no dominant culture in the society. The assimilation model in France, for example, is collapsing all of this and they are torn between their countries, uh, uh, countries' culture. Between this and this, and between something like the Islamophobia, which is really present in many parts of the world nowadays, uh, all of this creates like they are depressed, there is that level of depression, and suddenly, suddenly, they found a way there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and it differs, uh, gender-wise, it differs, like, if I'm a girl, if I'm raised in a Western society, but I have my origins, I'm going to do whatever the other girls do, but at one age, I cannot, because my society, and I'm going to be very depressed, because I don't know whether I depend here or here, and I get into my dilemma, until I find what through the social media gives me hope to be represented well, to be part of something. Uh, ISIS represent a dream. Like, you know, and I'm sorry for comparing, but it's different, but you know, America in one, at one time was representing a dream for people. It's a package. And people went to America with that dream. That being kept attend that you go to America, you get money, you get recognized, you do this. In the country we're in now, Norway, in the 19th century, two-thirds of the population moved to the United States. Yes. And, and I see, like, the United States was, was a dream, was representing a package. What ISIS is doing is they are trying to apply that. And they are using very creatively the uh, propaganda. And, and what I will tell you from lots of researchers, like political activists, is the same whatever the medium is. And it is more creatively used now on, uh, on that. Like, when I tell you Hitler, for example, okay, like Germany is, with all respect to Germany, Germany, like, this is a com country, but Germany controlled the big, big part of the world for a while. Why is that? Because of Goebbels, because of the media strategy that Germany did. And it's pure propaganda. You can see researchers from 1922, like Lippmann, when he talked about this propaganda model. And you have other, uh, Rosa, the other ones, 1937. Uh, uh, they are very ancient. What they did, they were used 
in the propaganda model sure. because it depends on fear. If you are going to invade me, and I'm afraid I'm going to leave home or I'm going to surrender. The biggest thing for any army in the world, and I mean any army or army group, is a lot of people living in one place. That's a big thing for the people. They cannot, they are scared of the population. But if the population, through propaganda, they are afraid, people will be afraid to resist. And this is why ISIS now, after the problems that they have in Kobani, because the biggest thing in the region, if you have a religious ideology with Islam, you have on the other side an ideology of the race of the Kurdish. And it was very strong for the Kurdish that they, they, developed, like they took them out of Kobani. Now ISIS wants only the Sunnis part. They want to create this state, and they want to, on the other side, and this is what I say, it's still mysterious because inside, inside, it's not religious, not religious as it came. They want to ruin the, the image of the tolerance Islam, and they want to put their own version and the discourse, and, and this is very bad for us as a Muslim. This is why some of the um, campaigns like uh, Not In My Name, for example, it really frightened ISIS. When, uh, when, like those, those kind, and those kind of campaigns, by the way, when they happen, and it's a problem really when the social movements are not represented. The media, the international media, don't care about that. They don't care about campaigns that really works. Like you, you, we were talking earlier about the environment. I'm talking to you about the anti-Islamophobia. And, and the media, because of the news agenda of the media, they don't care. Although the only thing that really can defeat ISIS is the Sunni Muslim, because they get their credibility out of this version of Islam. Of Islam. Abiy, I wonder if I could change tack a little bit, but not much, for a moment. You mentioned shortly ago, a short while ago, about your training that you give. Yeah, yeah. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that because it was very important in your stunning, startling keynote that you were generous enough to give us at the conference on war, gender, journalism, conflict reportage that we had. What is the nature of the training you give? Where do you give it and what's it been like? Actually, I, I stand for training and capacity building for journalists. And I have a big care for journalists in conflict zones, especially the local journalists, because those are the less fortunate journalists. The local journalists. Can you define that? Local journalists are the people who have been journalists, and then the war came to the regions where they were. The war came to them. Yes, the conflicts happened. Not the adrenaline junkies rushing from New York no. or London. Not the ones who take the grab bag and take decisions. And don't speak the language but have the big wallets. And sometimes they can stay in hotels and they take and report. And, and it happens. I've seen some, some of these because I'm a war correspondent myself. But I'm talking about the people who didn't take this decision. Right, so the people whom the war visited, you give them training. I visit, I, I go, I do several kinds of training, but the one that I'm really more into is a safety training, physical safety training, yep. conflict sensitive reporting training, because sometimes what the journalists report can really ruin the conflict completely mm -hmm. or it's make or break, so it's very important, and ethics training. And actually, the ethics one is I try to promote because I mix the ethics with the safety and the conflict sensitive reporting and with everything, you can mix it with everything because it's essential. Because it is something, if you put it to the journalist awareness very early, they will produce a better material and it's good but for the site. 
the term ethics, when applied to journalism, is something I associate very much with a US model of J school, journalism school, and the notion of objective, disinterested journalism within a history that was about trying to forestall the prospect of democratic regulation of capitalist businesses. And there are plenty of people, if we go back, for example, to struggles within UNESCO for a New World Information and Communication Order, who argued that all of this was nonsense and that there could not be the notion of distance and objectivity and that that whole brand of ethics was unacceptable for a new kind of committed activist journalism. Actually, there is no journalism runs in the air, okay? So every news organization has policies, why they do it, sometimes not for pure journalism, but <coughs> however, what I'm talking about is a simple uh, notion of things like, let me give you an example, yeah. what I train them on. One of the things that really depresses the local journalist is that because he's part of the society and the people who die in, those, in this conflict yeah. are his neighbor, his family, everything, is to whether to help the people or to report. That's one notion we talk about. And it is very important to tell them the value of the work because the people around you, when they find you only writing or taking photos, they will not ever value your work. So you have to tell them what is the value of what they work and that it is important to document what is happening because the narrative of what's happening is what writes history. The history is written now, and the history in our ages is written by the media. And I'm not talking about the big words like objectivity. I, 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 I totally agree with you. It's very big. It's very hard to achieve. Me, myself, sometimes I choose to be an activist, not a journalist, like it's like that. But if we help them to take insightful decisions, to be journalists, by the way, mm. that would be very good for the conflict and for the country itself. I never ever talk in the, about policy with the people that I train. But the fact that I am there to support them, to take their insightful decision, whatever it is, it is very important. Capacity building is to give people the tools. And by the way, this is what the media itself does to the people. We as media are not supposed to take decisions for the people. We give people the tools, we give them the facts, which is very rare in the Middle East and around the world. We give them, not the facts, we give them the information available for us, that are available to us because we are a journalist, to take their decision. So there is no objectivity is a big word and professional. We want them to be professional, but how you want them without giving them the tools? And I give it to them very simple so they can grasp it. Especially I'm giving those training. Sometimes there is air strikes are, 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 are around us, sometimes in a very bad, sometimes one is injured, I get injured, something like this. And uh, allow me, can I give some uh, good words to the soul of my friend, uh, my friend and colleague Kenji? Kenji is a Japanese journalist, and yes, I mean uh, Kenji, the journalist who have been beheaded by ISIS. We have been friends, and I dedicated my thesis to him. Uh, we used to go, like one of the people that I used to go, we used to go inside Syria and to give those kind of trainings anywhere, and I mean anywhere in the dark, in whatever, because there is no infrastructure. And he used to give those trainings for free, for the journalists there. And, 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 and I see, like, at the end of the day, again, life is about choices. We get injured, we get killed. But at the end of the day, if someone, like, 
really got the information well and use it wisely in his own context, we really trust that. That's a good thing. Now, you've mentioned being injured yourself. You've also mentioned being a journalist. I wonder if we could go back to your journalistic career, which isn't over by any means, but where it all, be where it all began for you, because I think you started as a journalist when you were a teenager, an adolescent. I, I, I was 15 when I started, but before that I have a nice story. Before 15? You're kidding me. I was four when I decided to be a journalist. Four. Count four. them, ladies and gentlemen. One, two, three, four fingers I'm holding out to be invisible camera, but isn't even there. <laughs> I, I was a kid uh, to my, my parents, and I was a very shy kid, and I only I can see parents. that now, still. Still, really? <laughs> And uh, once I was asked in class, and I went in a class, I was very terrified to see all those students around us. And, and then the teacher asked a very uh, important question. Everyone tell me, what do you want to be in the future? And half of the class wanted to be doctors, and half of the engineers. And more smarter wanted to be lawyers, to make money, and you know, lawyers make money. And my turn came, and I said, I want to be a newspaper. And when I said I want to be a newspaper, everybody laughed. I was very shy as a class. I went out and I started crying and I collapsed. And the teacher came and she told me, Apir, why are you collapsing? You want to be a journalist? I said, no, newspaper. I said, okay, why? Do you That's a bit more difficult. <laughs> and she told me, and I gave her the answer. I told her, um, my parents, all the time, uh, play with me, except when they got those papers that called newspapers, <laughs> and they play with it. So why don't I be a newspaper so I get the attention all of the my time. parents all the time, which is what you need from your parents. And she said, no, they are interested by the paper because there is someone called a journalist who writes oh, and you cannot be a journalist. I told you cannot be a journalist, said, she said? Yeah, unless you change. I said, what kind of change? Because I want to. And you're four. I was four, and this conversation, like, I was barely talking. I was just trying to find, find the words. She said, what? and she told me, don't be shy. I said, what is shy? Shy means... Shy is you, she said. She started to tell me what to do. And actually, that was the first lesson in journalism. And, and, and it was a very important lesson, because if you want to get the attention of the people that you seek, you have to change and you have to really build yourself right to take the attention of the people. My first readers are always, they have been and they will always be my parents, especially my mom. Yeah, those are the people who made me who I am. And those are the people, like, when I value journalism, when I see corruption around in the journalism sector, especially that I'm, I'm, I was responsible for the, for, the, for the sector in my country for years. Um, and, and I see it like this. I just remember this very pure moment when I decided early to be a journalist. At 15, I, I was already starting it, and I was professionally doing this parallel to my studies, supporting myself, doing everything. And I thank the people who gave me those opportunity. But I want to be honest that I lied to them, and they know that I lied about my age, that I was in Faculty of Art English section, which I, which I wasn't, but that was the only way to be there. Then I went to the Faculty of Mass Communication, but that was after working for years. in Cairo? In Egypt, yes. In, in Egypt, in Cairo. Yes. And then, okay, uh, you became... Uh, an office holder in the union. 
Yeah, I was elected, actually. Uh, the issue is that uh, the woman that was there and the female was there was there a long time ago, and when she left, no one entered the union. And it was a male-dominant society completely. Although, when I entered, I, I looked through the papers, because I'm an investigative reporter, and former reporter, so I looked. 42% of uh, the people who are in the union, among thousands of Egyptian union, are female journalists. But there is no representation, again, in the board. But when I presented myself to my colleague, I, I stand for one thing, training and capacity building. I want to empower the journalists, and I set a program, and I told them, judge me according to this. And I was already serving the union. So I, the first time I entered, 2003, I didn't win, and it was not, I was very young, and it was a surprise that they found out that I was already doing services, training service, getting trainers and everything. 2007, that was a historical day, not only for me, but because for Egypt, that was an important day, because the women went to the syndicate board of the Egyptian Journal Syndicate, which is the biggest thing representing media and the government. And uh, I was re-elected after this two times, including getting the highest vote ever in the history of the syndicate, like double what the... And I became the vice president, the first vice president, until, until, and that's bad, until I froze my membership at uh, February 2014. I walked away of the union because as a kind of protest of the killing of journalists, Egypt became the third country in the world of killing journalists, and we were not a state in a case of war. And I wanted to protest, and I thought that going to the thousands of people who uh, elected me, to tell them that we failed to really, lack of impunity, we failed to save them. That's when I walked away. Wow. Wow. And I be after eight months after that, I turned it completely devoted to academia, because I think the new generation really in a population, you know, you know what is the average agent in Egypt? I'm talking about 24 24 years old. Compare it, for example, to a country like Germany, it's 44 years old, like, okay? And uh, my mom, when she hears that, I'm, I'm 40, mom, yes, okay? I'm 40. I just turned 40. So in my country, I would not count me young, okay? So if I gamble, or not to gamble, if I work more with the younger population, I'm working for the future of Egypt. And I thought that's a time after 25 years of working in the media sector, because I started very early, it is a time to reflect on this experience and to work more on even the younger population, in addition parallel to still work on the conflict. So this is in all what I, I, I have done through those years. I got a nice recognition from reporters out borders, putting me in their 100, top 100 list of heroes of the nation, day of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, a day of freedom of expression, uh, 2014. I got uh, other uh, international prizes, and and I really value that. And I just got re-elected again as a board member of International uh, Association of Women Working in Television sector, which means that I work it from a national level, a regional level, and now I'm going to be working more on an international level. Parallel to my academic study, I think I'm going to be busy for the next uh, like couple of years. I suspect you've always been busy. Um, I wondered if you could t tell us a little bit about danger. 
Actually, I was, uh, when the first time we met, I was talking about adaptation. People, human body can adapt to whatever thing. Like, when you collapse, you choose to collapse. But if you want to handle stuff, you can handle stuff. There is danger, and danger is around us everywhere. And danger is not when you go to a war zone. Danger is when I cross now the streets and get killed. And I want to tell you, the biggest number of journalists dying are dying in car accidents. They don't die, actually, in the war. When we go to the war, we don't die. I went to seven wars, and I am still here. You get injured, but you still, you can survive. So the danger is always around us. You heard this morning when I was presenting uh, Noor Kelzi. Noor Kelzi is a Syrian citizen journalist. She's a photographer, and she's recognized. She take a recognition, an international recognition, recently. And she told you I could have been in the kitchen, and I could have been killed in the kitchen. Yeah, but yeah. she during the war, I want to be outside and at least doing something. She made that plain, didn't she? And she gets injured. You have filmed, you've shown of her leaving a situation where her leg was very badly injured. Yeah, and she was screaming once in camera, camera, because she wanted her camera. The camera is the way how you communicate with the world. So it's not about risking yourself, but it's about managing risks. And it's about that the journalists do not become the story. The lack of impunity is a very big issue in the world. And we have worked to work together. We are not, when we are protecting journalists, we are not protecting journalists because they are better than the other people. No, because those people are the only measure that this event happened or not. If they document it, it happened. If they don't document it, like a lot of massacres that happen through the history, we don't know about like I'm, I can here guarantee you, with you with no scientific academic research that tens of massacres have happened around the world through the history, maybe more, but we just don't know about them because there was no person who decided to write about it and to inform us about it. One of the things that you talked about today, though, is not just the question of danger and risk, and I'm conscious of time. I know you've got a phone call coming, right? He's never in time, my friend, yes. All right, okay. Uh, so, briefly, uh, we'll finish when you need to. Uh, the question of gender in all of this, you've mentioned that a couple of times en passant in this brief conversation, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, some of the differences and similarities for men and women in war situations as correspondents, as journalists, whatever terms we choose to use. Actually, with all respect with everybody, because when I was representing, I was representing everyone, females and males. But actually, the question is what females brings to the coverage. When you see a story like the story I was talking earlier today about this grandmother coming from Turkey because Syrians do not find uh, good hospitals or any hospitals at all in Syria if, if they got ill. She comes from Turkey with an ill baby, uh, with a die, dying baby. Yeah. This baby died and she's coming back to their mother and father to give the baby. They only allowed Noor to be with them in this journey, coming yeah. back, which is very unique because sometimes women, you can allow females because of their sensitivity, because of their way, and because of their gender sometimes, to cover some sensitive stories or some sensitive, very moments with people. So, and women and female journalists see those details. They humanize the conflict. Mm -hmm. They give an angle to this conflict with all respect to everyone. There are people, and it varies between people, but actually the majority of 
really some those kind of stories yeah. that depends on the sensitivity it comes mainly from so they give detail they give the touch to the story they go there and they present and the issue is that there is a lot of challenges we can talk about it afterwards but actually apart from the challenges the number of female journalists around the world in the conflict is increasing which is amazing because coverage and working is a challenge for a journalist but it's a bigger challenge for the female journalists but that means that more female journalists are capable of taking this challenge and to enter the sector. So, 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 so I see it as, as a good sign and they're bringing this kind of the, the feminine touch to the, the conflict and they're putting uh, more stories and they see different angles that really the male colleagues sometimes when they're doing the really good coverage as well, but they do not see it because it's a difference between the genders that really matters here and the difference between the society treatment of the two genders. It enriches the coverage. What about some of the specific obstacles that women face? Uh, sexism within the media organizations where they're working, lack of support as freelancers, and sexual violence in the field. So, as you classified it, there are problems before that even to find an opportunity to work. With the bigger number of unemployment between people working in the sector, now you know there is economic uh, crisis and sometimes they use economic crisis and the shape of ownership and everything. So there is very less and there is a decline in the opportunities in journalism for people to work. And if I prioritizing, I don't prioritize a woman sometimes because a man don't get pregnant and get a child leave, for example. And and that was told uh, for me when I got my first job, the proper job. They told me, okay, you got now a job. You, I earned it. I stayed six years. I told them get a proper fixed contract. I said, okay, no marriage, no marriage, no children. And I think that was a long time. And I passed the five years and I've never married and I've never had children. So sometimes they take your life from you because you want to prove yourself as a person who are equal to your male colleagues. I did everything to prove that, but actually I now discovered that I don't have to prove. I'm talking about myself, but if it happens to me, it happens. Do you regret that at all? Uh, or are you happy with that decision? I consider, uh, I don't know, I, I wish I had children, of course. Uh, I, told, I told you, this is good, this is a very wonderful thing, but in all cases, I would consider journalists I, uh, as, my, as my, my sons and daughters. And, and it's very strange because they, they have the same feelings toward me. And I'm talking about people, some of them really are older than me. And, and I have this sense, so I don't regret giving, but I regret the idea that I try to prove something to anyone. Like, I'm telling to people who are hearing us, male and female, don't prove anything to anybody, just be yourself. And I was myself, but I was proving. I was working harder than usual. And now in my age, I got, now I'm 40 with heart problems. And a lot of journalists are with this situation. If I take things more easily, I was racing all the time, racing, racing, racing. And I don't think this is a good thing, but I don't regret the things that I did for the people because this is what gives my life a meaning. I, it, it was a meaningful life after all. If I just like feel I should have done this and should have done this, that it's not a big regret.
I'm, I'm happy and I'm satisfied. And when I see some of the people that I touch or help, uh, it's, it's really progressing in the life. Like it's, it's a kind of achievement, more than the achievement that I do. Thank you for your frankness. Um, what about some of these questions I, I was mentioning earlier about uh, the sexism within organizations? You've mentioned that a little bit. But also uh, sexual violence in the field. Uh, or mistreatment in the field. I mean, one, an issue that was interesting today you mentioned is that a lot of protective armor yeah. is designed for a male body yes. and frequently doesn't suit a female body and in some cases has led to injuries. It led to injuries. One of my friends was injured because the armor, when the companies does that, they always apply the business model and they all, all would assume that most of the reporters are men. So it's safer to just do it at men, but the women's body is different. So when you do the armor, you should really take this into consideration. This is a very little detail, but I've seen this little detail hurt a friend of mine to death, okay? So it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is something very important. And the sexual thing, the sexual assaults happens not only in the streets, the sexual assaults happens at work. And, and through my work, because I was a union person, I was a... Uh, at the union, I heard a lot of stories and untold stories because they don't want to report sometimes because of the stigma on society. Sometimes the boss of the work harasses uh, the employees, the female employees, and, and it happens and it's a problem because like the job opportunities are very low and she comes to me and she said that happened and she said and she don't want to tell her family because it's going to be used against her. So it happens inside. When she goes in the street, we found a phenomena of harassment in, in, in a lot of regions. For a lot, of, for example, the harassment in Egypt it was not an economic phenomena only because this exists because people are not married at the proper because of the economic thing and they harass and, and stuff like that. But the issue is that we found through investigative reporting and through the social media that helped us to find the phenomena that it happens organized violence, sexual violence against females. And it is very selective. And it happens in gathering, democratic gathering like, uh, and freedom of expression gathering like demonstrations. So they would go, their sucks paid to wear middle class uh, clothes and just comes a very selective of the victim. They come around the victim and they start to harass her. When the victim is there, she may be a female journalist, she may be a female activist, she may be a middle, higher middle class, and it's a message for the likes of this girl never to come to the square, never to come to administration, never to be politically represented. So they send those messages through harassing, and really, the harassment, it's not just harassment, they really, like, they have, uh, they do scratches over the body, they strip the person, they, they really hurt the person that she has to spend a uh, long time after this in hospital to get treated. And uh, actually, they never say a bad word. It's always where your friends were, were supporting you, but actually they're harassing. So putting this together, we knew now that it's a political harassment, not a sexual, pure sexual harassment. And it's driven by the people who do not want the political participation of women. Because when women go to the square, when women go and participate in this, this means that this political movement works. Whatever political movement we're talking about. But one thing that makes a political movement is a very successful two things. One thing is the casualties, the people when they pay a price, especially if it's blood, people buy it. The second thing which is important, the female participation. When female goes and participate in the street and participate in those acts, it means 
it's no going back. And uh, actually, the counter-revolutions, and this is, an, um, and, and it's a very interesting now research that's happening at the University of Sawas uh, by two researchers. And it's about um, how the counter-revolution in Egypt, for example, have uh, led to uh, a lot of taking from the rights of minorities and women, and minorities like the Christians in Egypt, and, and with the, I don't like the word minorities like Christian Egypt because they, they, it's a citizenship, but it's anyway, yeah. and uh, women, because those two contributed very actively to the revolution. So the counter-revolution made them afraid and go to the Christians, have to go now again to the patriarchal society, which is a church in this case, and the women has to be protected by men. And uh, the, the regime tells them that we are protecting you if you go inside your church or you are protected by men who are us. And it's a politics of pity. We pity you and we are going to protect you. And really, 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 this is what the counter-revolution is depending on. They're trying to get to the minorities and the women into their side just because telling them that we are going to protect you. But people went to the street asking for freedom. They don't want to be protecting patriotically. You talked today about a distinction between the politics of justice and the politics of pity. Yes. That's a political concept, political series and everything. But bringing this piece of practice, the, in order for the politics of pity to happen, and this is what the international media and the big NGOs working in the sector sometimes work, it is you pity someone, there should be a distance between you and this someone. So what you do, you give and it gives you recognition, self-recognition, because you are giving. And this is why some celebrities go to the to the, to, to, to the big organization and contribute some of them, not everyone. But it gives you good feeling about yourself because you're giving. But if this person that you are pitying and giving comes nearer to you, and let's give a comparison. Uh, you turn completely against them. So let's give you uh, uh, something. When the famine happened in the, 19, in the 90s, the big famine happened in Africa and everything, and the, uh, the people started to sympathize. They did a big coverage, the biggest coverage story, and everybody still remembers that, was the BBC. The BBC went there, and the man talked. Although what he did, like if you get this report, and you see what he did, he talked to the doctors, international white doctors. He talked to uh, the people, aid worker, white people, and he talked about the people who are suffering and the people, are, and you can see the photos, but none of the people, the Africans themselves talked, okay? But it was a very good report because it dragged the world attention into this, that Michael Jackson came and they do the, we are the world, we are the king. You remember all those celebrities coming and doing all the stuff and the money went to Africa. But no one, the international media never asked actually, What's the problem? Is it the problem of giving the money? Or is it the problem, for example, the, the government at Sobia at that time, the government said that, are not taking the, 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 the aids and giving it to the people? Like, no one cared for details. It was cared about this. But when you see now the Ebola, the, Ebola, the, the illness uh, Ebola, when it strikes, the first thing that Europe tried to do now is to stop the Africans, all the Africans, not only the countries that have this affection, all the Africans from Africa. Because at that time, you cannot do the politics of pity when people comes to you. Because you want to stop them, you want to keep them at all. The same thing is happening again with the refugees. Like, I can pity the refugees if they stayed in Turkey, if they stayed, I can send some planes to strike on ISIS, and that's it. But you do not, there is no tolerance, I mean on a governmental level, at the beginning at least, for people coming here to seek that. 
But the answer was not the politics of pity in all cases. It is the politics of justice. Like, where is the justice into that? What is the government is doing, really, to stop, for example, in this instance, the Syrians from being afraid, being bombed, having their children killed, and have to leave their country? And they are not immigrants, by the way, like the international media say, intentionally, in terminology. They are freedom uh, asylum seekers. And why they are coming? Because there is a person who decided to bomb the people. And then this person helped into radicalization by getting those people out of prison and giving them the floor. So the, 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 the wave of violence happened because of one person. And now they are talking about that this person is going to go back and be part of the, of the of the future of Syria. I really like my humble my my brain cannot take that. So I, this is why I don't talk a lot about policy. But I really hate the politics of pity, and I wish the world have a politics of justice, whatever it is. But 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 leaving people like that, no, we do not want charity. We really want a more justice world. Um, I wonder if I could ask one last question. Uh, as I said, I know your, your time is precious. What is your greatest regret as a journalist? Okay, I don't want to end up with this cliche like I have no regrets and stuff like that. But I, I wish I'd had more time even. Like sometimes I, to work more with the people. I wish I had taken the decision maybe earlier to do my studies uh, because it's really important to do that. However, it's never too late. Like, and I'm telling people who are hearing us, some of them, of course, uh, they got their complete education, but in my age now, I'm, I'm seeking the PhD, as you know. But it's never too late because even if you get this like degrees, you reflect on your own experience. So I don't have the regrets by the kind of regrets. The kids thing is um, it's not a real re big regret because I have my brother's kids actually. But I will have I will end up if you permit me uh, uh, with an advice about never to give up. And uh, if you have only to take one breath in this world, like take this one breath and help people and try to do something and try to have a meaningful life and uh, try to do whatever you can to help others to empower themselves and don't be ever uh, selfish because selfishness means if I'm helping Egypt because I want to live in a better Egypt now no I want to help my country because I want my country in the future the kids who are born now to live in a better country they don't have to be my kids by the way but I want them to be happy and maybe I'm selfish that I want to be remembered mm. Mas or menos, uh, like you say in Spanish. <laughs> but uh, it will be good if people give a good memory for me. It will be nice. That would be nice. Thank you so much. I want to invite you to come back into the pod uh, in a year or so, whenever we next meet, if that's possible. I'm looking forward to this, and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much.